Thank you, our Father, for the hymn that we have just sung. A beautiful Trinitarian hymn. Exalting Father, Son, and Spirit. Distinct in personhood. United in one deity. A grass, a, a truth that is difficult for us to grasp, that is transcendent beyond our knowledge, but such an immense comfort. For we have in the Trinity a comforter to be with us, a friend and a groom who died for us, and a father who always leads us well in love. This Trinitarian God, fully satisfied in itself from all eternity, saw fit to display His glory beyond the Trinity and created mankind. And then devised the plan by which He might redeem mankind so that mankind redeemed man, might forever glory and delight in and treasure and love and be loved by this Trinitarian God. You have put us in fellowship with you and you have put us likewise in fellowship with one another. And that fellowship both with you and with one another carries implications. For we live, as we have just read, not for ourselves, but for you, for the manifestation of your glory and your righteousness. And so as we consider this morning again, some things that you have given us freedom and liberty to do, might we consider them in the context of fellowship, fellowship with you. What does it look like to exercise liberties in a way that demonstrates our love of you and fellowship with one another? What does it look like to exercise our liberties because of our love for one another? We are trained in this country to enjoy, to treasure, to value to demand our personal liberties. And while there are spiritual liberties that you have made available to us, might we learn the glory of setting those aside for the benefit of the body and the benefit of our fellowship with you. So would you lead us as we consider this passage to understanding to transformation. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 77 years ago, 76 men escaped from German Stalag Luft III and fled that prison camp through a tunnel that they had called Harry. That tunnel was built underneath that camp, 28 feet deep, 336 feet long, reaching just outside the fence, though they thought they had tunneled all the way to the forest by which they might escape. On the night of March 24, 1944, 200 men were designed to go through that tunnel. They'd actually built two other tunnels, Tom and Dick, affectionately named. Only Harry was completed, and they hoped on that night that 200 men might with their documentation that they had manufactured in that camp make their way to freedom. Only 76 men made it through the tunnel that night before the Germans discovered it, closed it down. Of the 76 men that escaped, only three made it through completely to freedom. 73 were recaptured. Of the 73 who were recaptured, 50 of them were assassinated by the Gestapo under orders from Adolf Hitler. At a memorial service for the event a few years ago, the Royal Air Force Air Vice Marshal Stuart Atha 
said that the event known as the Great Escape was an extraordinary chapter in human history. He said that the escapees were, quote, an exceptional band of airmen whose bravery, ingenuity, and resilient spirits set an example for all time. He said they were not prisoners of war. They were prisoners at war. End quote. History is filled with stories of people that have gone to great lengths to secure their freedom and their liberty. And that is true as well of believers in Jesus Christ and their quest to find and exercise and use the liberties that have been granted to us through Jesus Christ and our salvation. But how can we exercise those freedoms in a way that is honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ? And how can we exercise those freedoms and enjoy that liberty without compelling others to act the same way we do and perhaps against their own conscience? How can we maintain and use and exercise and delight in our freedoms in a way that maintains spiritual unity in the body of Christ? That's Paul's concern in Romans 14. More than, more than saying we need to treasure and delight in and use the liberties he's, that we have been granted, his quest is for the protection of the unity of the flock in the exercise of our liberty. He says it this way, use your individual freedoms as a means of preserving the corporate unity of the body. We have freedom in Christ to do a great many things. There are many different choices that we may make. There are differences in the way we may approach a great many different things, but our personal freedom is always subordinate to our corporate responsibilities. Our commitment to the unity of the church of Jesus Christ is what dominates this section, this chapter. We want to act, Paul says, so that unity is preserved. So in these verses, he will give us five instructions for the use of our liberties. Five instructions for the use of our liberties. We saw the first two of those last week. The first of them is this. There are differences in the body of Christ. There are differences in that there are weak people. The weakness of certain individuals in the body is reflected particularly in relation to their faith. Notice verse 1. Except the one, he says, who is weak in faith. It is not that they are not believers, for they have faith in Christ. The weakness is in the exercise of what that faith provides for them and what they believe that they can rightly do before the Lord and honor Him. Their conscience is telling them that they can do or cannot do certain things when God has given liberty for them to engage in those things. They, they simply lack confidence in the freedoms that God has given them in Christ. Says one commentator, they are troubled in conscience. They lack confidence in what they've been given. Along with them, there are strong people. These are people who have faith in Christ. In contrast to those who are weak in faith, verse 1, he sets, Paul sets up another person, verse 2, one person has, has faith that he may eat all things. So in contrast to the one who has weak faith, there is a person who has faith, we might say has strong faith, as he will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And they don't see that they are bound by the requirements of the law. And just a reminder, this is not about whether or not we have freedom to do things that are sinful. That's not what Paul is talking about. Things that are immoral are always out of bounds. No believer ever has a right to engage in anything that is immoral. Paul is talking about things that are amoral, without morality. He's speaking about things that we can choose to do or not to do, and either brings honor and glory to the Father. These different people, the weak and the strong, have different ideas about daily concerns. And he addresses 
two areas where these things might crop up. We don't know whether they were actually existent in the church in Rome. It is certainly possible they were. They were very definitely in place in the Corinthian church, which is what he addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And he addresses those two things of daily concern. Verses 2 and 3 talks about what are we going to eat? Simply put, can a, can a believer in Jesus Christ eat bacon? Or is it still wise to follow the Old Testament law and all of its dietary restrictions and not eat bacon and not eat shellfish and a variety of other kinds of foods? Are we obligated or even is it wise to maintain those dietary restrictions? Then verse 5, he talks about the Sabbath and worship could be the Sabbath he's talking about in verse 5 regarding or judging one day to be above another. could be the Sabbath that he's talking about. could be the Old Testament feast days. Uh, it's a little unclear from the text what he means. It, but what we do know that there is something about the Old Testament law, something about when one worships that was obligating some to say, we need to, we need to keep worshiping on this day, either on the Sabbath or on the feast days. And others are saying, no, we've been freed from those things. We worship on Sunday and we, we don't need to keep the feast days. And there were evidently differences in the Roman church. And there are differences today about how to live and how to exercise our freedoms. There are debates about diet, about entertainment about the use of money for vehicles and technology and vacation and houses. There are debates about clothing and medical treatments, about masks, food, government, parenting, contraceptives, schooling, children's sports leagues, work on Sunday, and that's the tip of the iceberg. Just about everything you do on a given day reflects some kind of exercise of liberty and debatable concern. And Paul's concern in this chapter is, how are we going to live with one another when we're making different choices about those things? How do we treat one another? How do we exercise our liberty? And his goal is loving unity. His goal is not uniformity. His goal is not to make sure everybody's doing the same thing. His goal is to make sure that everybody is united in purpose. A second word of instruction he gives us is at the beginning of verse 1, and that is one attitude to guide our different choices. One attitude. And that attitude is to accept the one who is weak. It's not explicit in the text, but it's a plural verb. So Paul means something like this. Now everyone except the one, or put into a more local dialect. Now, y'all accept the one. All y'all. Everybody. Everybody ought to be accepting that idea of acceptance as the idea of bringing someone into fellowship. It's companionship. It's intimacy. We think of acceptances as something like tolerance. Well, I'll accept it. I'll tolerate it. I'll put up with it. But that's not what Paul means. Paul means embracing, welcoming, drawing in, compelling another sweetness of fellowship, intimacy. And notice that Paul offers at the end of verse 1 something of a contrast to that acceptance. We accept the one who is weak, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We don't say, come on in, let me fix you. Come on in, let me address the area where you're wrong. It's not about evaluating the opinions of another. That word opinions is an interesting word. It has something of the idea of scruples. So they've become scrupulous. We even get the Religious, the word for religious OCD from that. Religious, religious OCD, scrupulosity. They have these scruples that just compel them and, and in a sense even bind them 
to their activities. And Paul says, we are not in the body to pass judgment on those scruples. We don't know the influences that have been on them. We don't know their heart desires. We can't see inside of them. So we're not offering an opinion about how they have developed or what they have developed as their scruples and opinions. So acceptance says, I embrace your participation in the body and I will welcome you and I will I will even work to help you practice your preferences within the context of the church body. This is the heart of what Paul says. We accept one another because we love one another. We've noted previously that starting in chapter 12 particularly, there's been an emphasis on love for the body of Christ. Even just a few verses earlier, 13.8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You want to fulfill the law? Then you love one another. And it's in that context that Paul says, let's exercise our liberty in a way that demonstrates we love each other by accepting one another. Thirdly, he says there is one caution for us as we are making our different choices, and that is don't discriminate against one another. Don't discriminate. Whether we are weak, and I would venture a guess that all of us are weak in some areas, or whether we are strong. And Paul indicates in verse 1 that probably most people are strong, And my guess is that most of us are strong in some areas. Our consciences are free. We say, yeah, we can do that. There's freedom. There's liberty to do that. Yet there is still a tendency for both weak and strong to judge others for their choices. So Paul cautions both sides In verse 3, I think, yeah, the PowerPoint and I think your notes say 3B, that should be 3. The tendency is to judge. Notice what he says, verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. To regard that person with contempt is to disdain them. To, to say something like, that person, that person has no worth. That person has no value. They're, they're weak. They're, they don't get it. They don't understand. It's a form of spiritual pride by which he looks down at the other and says, Oh, brother, one day you might attain to my position. But until then, you're just, you're just down there. Similarly, those who are weak have a like temptation. The one who does not eat, the one who says it's wise not to eat meat because we don't know what kind of meat might be in it. We don't know if there might have been, it might be a steak that's fine, but it might have been rendered or, or cooked with bacon fat. We don't know. It's just better not to eat any meat at all. Let's just eat vegetables. It's safer that way. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. The one who judges is making a distinction with the one who eats. I don't see how you can eat that meat, drive that car, take that vacation, school your children in that way and call yourself a genuine follower of Jesus. Have you no passion for sanctification? Have you no passion for purity? That's the temptation of the one who's weak. And like the meat eater who's contemptuous, it also is a form of spiritual pride. You haven't attained to my weakness. And both these terms, contempt or regarding and judge, are roughly synonymous And they have the idea of ungodly discrimination. And what Paul wants us to see is that that's a temptation no matter which side of the aisle we're on. Whether we're engaging in a liberty or withholding a liberty. 
Brothers and sisters, the problem is not whether someone eats meat or someone eats only vegetables. The problem is what I think about the person who chooses differently than me. The problem is not whether someone homeschools or public schools or private schools. The problem is what I think about the one who's made a different choice than I have. And it's problematic for what Paul says at the end of this verse. Don't do those things. Don't judge. Notice the end of verse 3. For God has accepted him. Not only does God not treat my brother who makes a different choice contemptuously, but God accepts him. In this passage, starting in 14.1 through 15.7, that word accept is used four times. What's interesting is that word is only used 12 times in all of the New Testament and four times in about 30 verses. Verse 1, accept the one who is weak. Verse 3, God has accepted him. 15.7, now accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And the point the apostle is making is, not only has God not condemned that person who's made a different choice than us, He has accepted him, welcomed him, embraced him. He has intimate fellowship with him. And if God, the Father, has sweet fellowship and intimacy with the one that makes the other choice, How dare we treat contemptuously that one who's made other choices? God is not reserved in his fellowship with us and for us. And 15.7 makes clear the reason that he accepts us is because we're in Christ. And he, he accepts us in the very same way as he accepts his beloved son, Jesus. He's not reserved in his fellowship with us. He is not reserved in his fellowship with his son. We ought not to be reserved in our fellowship with one another because we are all, if we are in Christ, those who belong to him and accepted by him. It serves us well to remember also that we are accepted by God because we are in Christ. So God sees us with Christ's righteousness. That's why He accepts us. We come not on our own righteousness, but with Christ's righteousness. But He also accepts us because it's not a sin. Remember, these are liberty issues. These aren't sin issues. These are not immoral issues. These are brothers who are not sinning. And they're both attempting to honor the Lord. So the Father puts no restriction on His fellowship with us. So we put no restriction on fellowship with one another. We embrace one another. It's not our call whether or not to accept each other into the body of Christ. The Father's already done that. And because He has done that for us, We do it for one another. Don't discriminate because we've been accepted. Another point of instruction, there's one principle to remember in our different choices and that principle is that God is judge and God will judge. One of the rhetorical devices that the apostle frequently uses when he wants to make a point is that he'll ask a question. So, for instance, in chapter 9, verse 20, some will say to him then, why does, why does God still find fault? Who, who resists his will? On the contrary, Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? 
will it? When it's just like a dagger into the heart. He does the same thing in verse 4 to make his point. He asks the question, Who are you to judge the servant of another? Let me paraphrase that. Who died and made you jury and judge? Have you forgotten who the judge is? Have you forgotten that he will judge all men? The point that the apostle is getting to is that when we are evaluating others, criticizing, forming opinions, attempting to compel them to do the kinds of things that we do, we've forgotten who's in charge. Yes, the other person is a servant. Yes, that person has a master. But I'm not the master. So Paul answers his own question in the middle of verse 4. Notice this, to his own master. He stands or falls. It's true. He's going to have to give an accounting. But the accounting is not to me. It's not to you. It's not to anybody else in the body. The accounting is to his master. That statement had to really resonate with the Romans because there was such a culture of slavery in the Roman Empire. It is estimated by some that up to 60 million people People in the Roman Empire were slaves. Slaves included doctors and teachers and musicians, actors, secretaries, stewards. Says one commentator, While many slaves were loved and trusted members of the family, one great inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. In In Roman law, a slave was not a person but a thing. And he had absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. Aristotle writes, There can be no friendship nor justice toward inanimate things, including a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. And so when Paul says, we're all slaves and we all have a master, there's all, there's an accountability coming for all of us. That that had to just resonate so clearly with the Romans. Notice he also says, it is in the context of his own master that he will either stand or fall. Speaking about these issues of differences, he would have us to understand that that person will stand in righteousness or fall in judgment. That the master has a right to grant life or to execute judgment and death. Bishop Chrysologus wrote in the 5th century about slavery Whatever a master does to a slave, undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. The master has total authority to act. If the slave survives or the slave dies, he is completely in the hands of the slave's master. The master had unilateral right to act and no one else did. And that's Paul's point. You're not the judge. You're not the Lord. You're not the master. It was unexpected in the Roman culture that the slave would stand. So what Paul says next had to just be utterly stupefying to the readers. To his own master, he stands or falls and he will stand. Weak, 
and strong. They both stand. Why? Because they've been both accepted by Christ. And they have Christ's righteousness. That's why he says at the end of the verse, the Lord is able to make them stand. They don't stand on their own righteousness. They don't stand on their own sanctification. They stand on what has been provided for them. The Lord will make them to persevere. Brothers and sisters, when we create divisions and break fellowship over non-sin, over liberty issues, and let me just make an aside, I don't know of anything that's going on in our church body at the moment. I don't know of any significant factions, but I do know the tendency of the human heart. And so while there may be nothing overt at the moment, we need to hear this to protect our own hearts and to protect this body in its unity. And when we create divisions, when we say my liberty takes supremacy over your non-liberty, we're not only harming the unity, the love, and the fellowship of the church body, but we are assuming that we have a position that we don't have. I am not the judge. I'm not even the judge of my own heart. I'm not even judge of my own soul. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.4, just a few pages over, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. I'm accountable to the Lord and he will judge and he will examine and he will test. And then he makes application in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Just wait. And the Lord will examine not only what is done, but he'll examine the heart and everything will be exposed. The problem when we judge is not only that we have assumed a position that we don't have, we have assumed a position that we are deity. We've taken the throne of God. And moreover, we have forgotten that we also will be judged by him. This theme is so important. Paul not only mentions it here in verse 5, but he also brings it back up again in verse 10, 10 to 12. And we're going to look at that more extensively next week. But for now, just understand, I'm not judge. I'm not jury. I don't have that position. And along with that, I also will be judged and I also will be evaluated. And that is what needs to be preeminent in my heart. So those are four attitudes and mind, mindsets to cultivate towards others. And now starting in verse 5, the apostle offers several guides to how we make personal decisions with what to do with our liberties. How do we decide how to spend our money. How much money is too much money for a car, for a vacation? How much money is too much money for a cup of coffee? What do we do with our discretionary time? What do we watch on TV? Is it possible to watch TV? Is it possible to watch Netflix? What do, what do we watch if we watch? How do we watch? When do we watch? So starting in verse 9, three guides for making our different choices. First principle, verse 5, do what you do with confidence. Verses 2 and 3, the apostle talks about the issue of food. That's a typical kind of thing that might have arisen in the Roman church. Verse five, uh, starting in verse um, 5 and verse 6, he emphasizes the issue about worship. When do you worship? And what seasons do you worship? Do you worship on the Sabbath or do you worship on Sunday? Do you worship on the feast days? If the feast days, which feast days? Is it possible, necessary, 
to worship on Saturday? Is it necessary to worship on the feast days? This is not isolated only to the Corinthian church. This is something that crops up in other churches as well. So Paul writes to Corinth, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. In other words, you're, you're keeping the Old Testament feast days and likely is also referring to the Sabbath as an expression of your pursuit of sanctification, thinking that that will make you holy. And he says, I fear that I have pursued teaching you about the righteousness of Christ in vain. Similarly, in Colossians chapter 2, he writes to that church, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or to a new moon or to a Sabbath day. Again, some are some are saying we need to keep all of these feast days and others are saying we don't need to. And some are saying we need to keep the Sabbath and others are saying we don't need to. What do you do in that situation? Notice that Paul says one, one person regards one day above another. Another regards each day alike. That word regard is, is actually the word judge. And so it's not just like, well, I prefer worshiping on Sabbath. No, no, no. He's made an evaluation. He has searched through the scriptures. He's trying to come to an evaluation based on the scriptures about what the best thing is to do. This isn't just a, um, do you want cream or sugar with your coffee? I don't know. Just give me coffee. It's not that kind of decision. This is a decision that is rooted in an examination, careful study, intense thinking. And he's come to a conclusion And the conclusion is, we need to keep the Old Testament days. Another has also evaluated. And he's looked at those days and he judges every day to be the same. So there's no supremacy or value for sanctification in worshiping on the Sabbath. In fact, if you would ask him, he would prefer to worship on Sunday. By the side note, I think that's the New Testament pattern. But isn't it interesting that the apostle doesn't make that clear here? That's not his concern. That's a debate for another day. He's simply saying both sides have searched, studied, evaluated, and come to a judgment, a decision. And then notice what he says. What's important is not whether where you end up, what side of the fence you end up on Sabbath and Sunday. What's important, end of verse 5, look at it. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Each person. In other words, every person is going to have to come to a conclusion, their own conclusion, about liberty issues that are based on the study of the Scriptures and their personal evaluation of their life circumstance and what is best for them to help them to walk with Christ. This is not something that you can push off on somebody else. You have to think, You have to evaluate. You have to decide. Each person must be fully convinced. That means they are assured. They are certain. They are confident. It is is this kind of confidence that led to Abraham believing in God in such a way that it produced and led to his righteousness. With respect to the promise of God that he would have a descendant, uh, Romans 4.20. Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. He has full confidence, assurance that this is truth 
And it led to his justification. That's the kind of thing that the apostle is emphasizing here. You have to be convinced. This is, this is the formation of your conscience, right? Or this is the maturing of your conscience. So you're evaluating what's right, what's wrong. I want to do those things that will lead me to Christ. And you only want to do what will lead you to Christ-likeness. What you believe will lead you to Christ-likeness. When I was about, trying to think, seven, eight years old, my dad taught me this principle. He didn't say, "This is son, this is Romans 14.5, but it was Romans 14.5. I remember where I was standing. I don't remember the store, but they had a, a rack of baseball cards. And they were in a, a clear wrapper so you could see. And there was... Um, there was one package and it had Willie Mays in it. That goes back a few years. It had a Willie Mays card and then there was another pack and it had somebody else. I don't remember who was in it. And I remember going to my dad and saying, Dad, should I buy this one or this one? Or should I buy them both? I don't know what to do. And dad taught me the principle. When in doubt, don't. If you have any question about it, don't do it. Why? You have to be fully convinced that this is the right thing to do. If you have doubts about the spending of the money and where you're going to go on vacation, don't until you're convinced. Each one fully convinced. What the apostle is talking about here is informing your conscience and training your conscience and equipping your conscience so that it does and evaluates what is right and then following that conscience. We see an example of that in Acts chapter 10. Peter says, I wouldn't ever eat anything unclean, Lord. And he sees this vision three times. The sheet came down from heaven with all the supposedly unclean animals on it. And God says, Peter, rise, kill, eat. Aren't those glorious words? And Peter says, no, 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 I wouldn't do anything. And God says, I've made it clean. Enjoy. And when Peter was convinced, it absolutely turned his life upside down. Not just dietary, but the next scene, he's with Cornelius and embracing and giving the gospel to a Gentile. Why would a good Jew embrace a Gentile? Because he's convinced that God has made him clean. So in the same way, we need to be developing our conscience, training our conscience, informing our conscience. And notice what the apostle also says. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So you don't make a decision for me and I don't make a decision for you. This is a personal evaluation. It's not even a husband and wife thing. We can have different ideas, different principles, even within the context of the husband and wife. You come to your conclusion about what will help you spiritually walk with Christ and then do that. Let me summarize it. Never go against your conscience. Even if your conscience is misinformed or overly sensitive, condemning you for something that is, ne- that is not sin, you never want to train yourself to ignore your conscience. If your conscience tells you to do it and it's moral, then follow it. Ignoring your conscience will lead you to killing your conscience and making it ineffective and useless. Never go against your conscience. When in doubt, don't. Beware of following the convictions of others. Doing what others do simply because they are influential in your life will keep you from thinking difficult, deeply and may cause you to violate something that is what you believe best for your sanctification. 
Don't just blindly follow other people. Don't just say, well, they do it. It must be right. I don't remember where we were when we had the conversation, but I, I remember the conversation that Regine and I had shortly after we were married. And we made a decision to never drink alcohol. I happen to think that there are some good reasons biblically not to drink alcohol. But I can't say absolutely with complete authority, thou shalt not. But I never wanted to be in a position where I would be in Kroger pushing my buggy down the aisle with a 12-pack And you come by and see my buggy and the Lord has freed you from the slavery to alcohol. But you see me with alcohol in my buggy and you say, Terry's drinking it. It must be okay." And you fall back into the pattern of drinking alcohol when you can't control it and it starts to control you. Now I have led you into sin to violate your conscience. And I never wanted to do that. And similarly, brothers and sisters, for the same reason, don't ever just blindly follow someone. Just because you respect them, they may be godly people. Don't do what they do just because they do it. Come to your own conviction. What's the right thing for me to do? And then to go to what I just talked about, beware of imposing your convictions on others. Our goal is to think for ourselves, not to compel others to do everything we do. Others may come to you and say, hey, why do you do that? Why, why are you making those choices? Tell me, tell me about what went into your thinking about schooling or entertainment, or where you're going for vacation. Tell me about how you think about money and finances and where you spend your money. Oh, give them the answer. But don't ever attempt to compel them to make the same freedom choices that you have made. Don't, don't put your conscience on them. So teach them. Give them information from the Scriptures, but be careful of compelling them. Three guides for making different choices. Do what you do with confidence. Do what you do with gratitude. In verse 6, Paul has already been talking about eating, in verses 2 and 3. Verse 5, he talks about worship. Verse 6, he combines those two separate choices and puts them in similar categories. And, and by that, we know that the, the issue isn't about eating, drinking, worship. That's not the issue because Paul's lumped them together and he's not trying to sort them out theologically and saying, well, here, here are the issues related to what you eat. Here are the issues related to how you worship. That's not what he's doing. He's talking about attitudes and how we come to make convictions personally. Notice what he says. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. So... Worship is done for the Lord on the Sabbath or on the feast days. And he who eats steak wrapped in bacon with shrimp on the side does so for the Lord. Why? Because he gives thanks to God. And the one who does not eat, the one who says, no thanks, I'll have double grilled Squash, please. Which isn't bad, by the way. He who eats not, for the Lord, he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For both of them, he says, worship or non-worship. He doesn't actually say not worshiping, but it's implied. Worshiping or not worshiping, it's for the Lord. And it's with gratitude. Eating meat, not eating meat, it's for the Lord. And it's with gratitude. We're going to talk about doing things for the Lord in just a moment because he's going to pick up that theme in verse 7. Let me just focus for a moment on doing what you do with thankfulness. They do it with thankfulness. Both the meat-eater and the vegetarian are eating in faith, giving thanks 
for what God has provided for them to eat. They both give thanks. Neither feels superior to the other. Neither feels inferior to the other for what they do. They're eating what they're eating to give honor and gratitude to the Lord. They're not resentful for what they have. And they're not resentful for what they do not have. They are grateful for what they have been given to eat and giving thanks. In fact, Paul makes a very similar point talking about the conscience in First Timothy chapter 4. He talks in verse 2 of First Timothy 4 about those who have seared their consciences as with a branding iron. These are, verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, God's given us all this food. All the food. Eat it. Enjoy it. Give thanks. Don't eat all of it at one meal. You'll get sick. But whatever you eat, give thanks. It's a gift from God. And Paul says both can do it with gratitude. So an essential test of anything we do is, can I do this with gratitude for God's good gift of this to me? In fact, can I even back up before that? Is it a gift of God to me? And if it is, am I doing it with gratitude? And will God receive this exercise of my liberty as a genuine and right expression of gratitude? Do what you do with confidence. Do what you do with gratitude. Lastly, do what you do for the Lord. In verse 4, the apostle introduces the lordship of Christ, right? He says both strong and weak, will stand because the Lord, Kurios, the Master, is able to make him stand. He reminds us in verse 6 that everything we do, we do it for the Lord. And now verse 7, he amplifies that idea. For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. We're, we're living and dying for something that is more important than our own wants and our own desires. My life is not about my liberty. My life is about something greater than my liberty. That's the same thing that he means about our death. My death is not ultimately about me. My death is not ultimately about my own personal benefit. My death is about bringing glory to another. So both my life, what I do as I'm alive, and my death, how I die, are done for another. It's not about me. I'm not supreme. Who and what is supreme? Verse 8. For if we live, notice, we live for the Lord. We live in such a way that He takes pleasure in what we do and that when others see us, they see Christ in us. Lots of passages make this same point. Romans eight twenty nine. We are bonded to Him. He's chosen us, elected us, secured us, glorified us. So that he might come to be the firstborn among us. So that he comes to have first place in everything. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 8 makes the same point. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. We come to life through him. Earlier in that verse, speaking about the Father, he says, all things come from Him and we exist for Him. It's about His glory. It's not about our glory. It's not about our pleasures. It's not about our delights. 
And we die in the same way, our dying. Notice verse 8. If we die, and we will, we die for the Lord. It's, it's for His glory. So that people see we are dependent on Him. We're not anxious. We're not fearful. We're not clinging to the things of this world as if they are ultimate. But we are letting, willing to let them go. We understand Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and die as gain, there's more value there than there will ever be here. Dying is for the Lord. So, summary, verse 8, therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to Him. We are the Lord's. We really belong to Him. We are His And brothers and sisters, that means we have no rights and no privileges of our own and we do not live for ourselves and for the indulgence of our desires, even if they're freedoms. We let those things go so that we can say we live for the Lord. Verse 9 expands this idea. For to this end, Christ lived and died again. Why did Christ die? And why was Christ resurrected? Paul didn't confuse the order. We know Christ came and lived a perfect life, but that's not what Paul is emphasizing here. He is emphasizing his death and resurrection, for to this end Christ died and lived again. For this this reason, Christ died on the cross and was resurrected from the tomb. Why? That he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Christ's death And resurrection was for the purpose of making us his and for him to have preeminent first place in our lives. He died. Not so that we could become self-indulgent. He died so that we could become Christ-indulgent. And the world tempts us with such trinkets of no value. And we exchange them for the living God. He died to exercise absolute lordship and dominion over us and over all people. He is the Lord. He is sovereign over all people. And there is coming a day, may it be soon, when he will be exalted over everyone in a most demonstrable way. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why is his lordship so important in this discussion? Commentator Christopher Ash says this. The Lordship of Christ means I must never pressurize a fellow Christian to do something that they really believe dishonors Christ, even if I happen to know it won't. What they believe subjectively is more important here than what I may know objectively. They and we must be fully convinced in our own minds that the way we behave honors Jesus as Lord. Many liberty questions exist. How do you sort it out? Those three questions. Can you do what you do with confidence? Can you do what you do with gratitude? Can you do what you do for the Lord? For His glory and for His honor. And until we answer those questions affirmatively, don't do it until you're confident. And then delight in that liberty. Father, 
These are complex issues, issues that touch our lives, as we've noted, every day. And there are a great many differences in this body about how we do things. And would you give us grace to make wise decisions that demonstrate that we are living for you personally? And would you give us grace to make wise decisions that demonstrate we are living for you corporately? That we would much rather have the unity of the body and the care of brothers rather than the exercise of our own liberties. Would you give us wisdom in that? Would you give us grace for that? We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.